everyone. Welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriela Ariana Campoverde, but you can call me Gabby. Our guest today is Ronan Asia, Managing Partner at Team 8 FinTech Foundry, a venture fund within Team 8 that partners with entrepreneurs to build companies in FinTech space. For over 20 years, Ronan has been successfully merging technology and design together into useful and accessible products and defining user experiences across various devices and platforms. Most recently, Ronan served as eToro's Chief Product Officer, managing product and engineering, and has helped grow the company Fintech Unicorn, serving 13 million users in over 140 countries. eToro pioneered social investing, enabling every investor to see follow, and automatically copy the portfolios of other investors in the network. In this episode, you will learn all about how Team 8 works with fintech talent, Ronan's insights into the Israeli fintech ecosystem, and his global investment outlook. We'll also get a chance to hear his thoughts on blockchain innovation, NFTs and art curation, how startups can marry the old and new worlds of fintech, and so much more. Now. Let's get started. Hi, Ronan. How are you doing? It's so great to have you on the show today. Hey, Gabriella. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Um, well, I know we're super excited to learn more about you know, your region of the world. So everyone knows that the Israeli fintech ecosystem is moving. Do you mind giving us a better understanding of what's driving this trend? Well, I think there are several factors, but you know, traditionally, Israel has been a very good place for startups and founding new startups. But I think if you look at sort of the tech 1.0, which happened, you know, I would say three decades ago, it was mostly around focusing around, you know, very heavy enterprise software companies that were selling for solutions to Fortune 500 companies around areas like uh, telecom and, you know, CRMs and other enterprise heavy solutions. And what happened is over the past, I would say a decade or so, it's been more common for especially young founders to sort of skew more towards direct-to-consumer companies, web companies, mobile companies, which hasn't been at all the case for in previous generations. So the move from, I would say, very heavy on enterprise and cyber to more consumer, fintech, mobile sort of ecosystem has really boomed over the past couple of years. And I think it's mostly driven by, you know, both the trends in the market, but also the, the accessibility of, you know, various development tools, as well as people, uh, you know, opening to the global markets, understanding that it's not that easy to sell to large enterprises. And, you know, the sort of skills that uh, people had here, which were mostly uh, skewed towards uh, heavy tech, people have gotten more uh, bold and serious around creating brands, creating uh, marketing opportunities, creating user journeys, creating great UX for the ecosystem, and have been less shy on trying to take uh, bolder bets towards you know, the retail market. Uh, so I would say that that's mostly what's driving, I think, driving a lot of the fintech innovations that happened here. But it's not only around fintech, I think many more verticals, which have not been so common for the Israel marketplace are really booming in the past couple of years. Thank you for that. Um, you know, you've been a founder for a major fintech company, eToro, been in the space for quite a number of years now. 
what inspired you to move over to the team at Team 8 and help build new fintech companies? Yeah, I always like, uh, you know, the famous Holden Caulfield quote from uh, Catcher in the Rye, where he says, you know, where do the ducks fly when the lake is frozen? So that's the analogy I use of, you know, where do entrepreneurs fly when the lake is frozen? And I think for me, it was always, you know, having built, you know, a, a successful uh, fintech company for the past uh, 15 years. And of course, I'm still very much involved with eToro. You know, there's a certain what's next. And, and so some of my colleagues, there's this fork in the road, which is either you go and build your next thing, or maybe you start uh, just investing in uh, other people's ideas and companies. And so I think the proposition with the teammate model, which we call a foundry model, was very compelling to me, which is best of both worlds. Uh, I get to build stuff from scratch, and I also get to invest in the companies we build which is um, a sort of, you know, I call it a Peter Pan model, which forces you to stay young in that uh, zero to one stage of, of companies where you rely heavily on ideating, on bringing a company to the product market fit. And then together with, you know, great entrepreneurs and founders, you sort of delegate them the work, you give them the company, and you happily see that uh, sail into the sunset. So I think that. Uh, finding that sweet spot for me, at least, of, of creativity, working with small teams, great entrepreneurs, and really focusing on the very early stages of ideation and brainstorming about, you know, what's trending, what's going to be uh, interesting in the next five to 10 years in fintech. That was, for me, the, the compelling proposition. Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. So- with that in mind, like how are your, you and your team helping these entrepreneurs stay relevant and really understand what, how they can get, get, gain a competitive advantage um, in, in the industry? Well, having been in fintech for the past uh, 15 years or so, and, and really looking at a lot of young teams, young companies, you know, sort of nascent ideas in all stages, uh, I'm constantly surprised by some of the and by the way, I'll just say, you know, I've probably did every mistake possible in the book. So we were also three young founders when we founded eToro, had nothing, you know, no real experience in building a broker from scratch, but we had a very bold idea. So I think I'm still surprised when I see really talented entrepreneurs um, trying to go to market with very bold fintech ideas, but they have no real experience, no real understanding of the overall landscape. I always give this talk about, you know, the holy trinity of fintech, which is regulation, uh, operation, and application. And unlike other domains where you don't have that very heavy regulatory involvement or ecosystem that will obviously dictate what you can and cannot do uh, to some extent, I see so many companies just raising, you know, two, three, four million bucks coming to me, you know, 18 months later after having spent half of that amount just on legal advice, and they're still clueless whether what they wanted to do could still be feasible. So I think all of that regulatory uh, and operational aspects of the business are really what stand out when it comes to fintech. I think you know the two probably most heavy domains, fintech and healthcare, which are not like any other software development solution out there. So I think with some gray hair, or even uh, no hair for that uh, matter, I think um, 
is always good to have some people who have, you know, both an operational background, the necessary experience to help you sort of find your path through the tall grass and figuring out, you know, what could be done versus what might could be done versus what probably cannot be done. So I think that's the level of, of engagement and experience uh, we bring to the table. And of course, very strong on, you know, other aspects of not, not just being only U.S. focused, but also a more sort of global uh, approach to various markets. And you, you bring up really good points with what differentiates like fintech entrepreneurs, right? So like you have to work within the regulations and like understand that while, you know, a lot of the tech companies out there, well, tech startups, you know, you want to break stuff, learn really quickly, but within this space, it becomes a bit more contained. You have to be thoughtful about the processes or, you know, the users that you're, you're targeting. I'm curious, like, like Team 8 FinTech itself is quite new. So what drove this 2020 launch and how are you guys really taking on those opportunities? I'll start by saying, you know, it's been a crazy two years uh, ever since uh, the outbreak of COVID. So it's very difficult, you know, jury is still out how the world will will come out out of all of this uh, since we're not out of the pandemic yet, unfortunately. I think we would all be uh, happier to see digital acceleration happening uh, without such grim overall world consequences. But nevertheless, it has driven a lot of uh, acceleration. And it, it's difficult to draw immediate conclusions. But I will say, you know, there have been certain thoughts around, you know, how digital financial services will shape the world. And so the digital acceleration, which used to be, you know, people said, you know, some generations will just not get it. And, you know, digital acceleration around financial services will only happen for generation X, generation Y, generation Z, and younger generations. Now everybody understands it's across the board. So things we're seeing where it's, uh, it's not just about generational shift, but also, you know, what's now referred to as the silver generation. So, you know, even our grandparents, would never go online or use a mobile app. Everybody's now figuring out alternatives to going to the branches or going around paying uh, with cash. So the world has really evolved. And I think it's mostly about seizing some of these opportunities, not only for certain demographics, but really across the board. And I always like to say, you know, sort of we see that niche is is the new wedge uh, to the retail. So unlike, you know, traditional solutions a decade ago with where, where it was a just a one size fits all across uh, so many different services now niche is the new king so we see sort of interesting solutions all the way from CRM for veterinarians underwriting for uh, auto repair shops uh, BNPL for uh, wedding planners neobanks for divorced couples and there's just so many opportunities in the market where you can penetrate having a really well customized solution and then expand from there. And I think that's a whole new different thought process that happened over the past, I would say, two or three years now that you really have to tailor a very well-made solution for a very specific target audience and expand from there, which is a, a whole different process versus, you know, I would say a decade ago. And so our job uh, with all of this changing landscape is just to find, you know, very relevant founders. And I'm always surprised by how you know, the, it's, it's not a cookie cutter world where we live in. So I see so many 
teams without an idea, ideas without teams, half a team with half an idea. And then it's, it's super interesting for us to try and both help uh, the teams validate the idea much better when you go to market. And again, in fintech, I think it's a bit more complicated and sort of helping uh, match make a great idea with a great team and helping that properly go to market, I think is where we try and excel. Interesting. And um, I do want to ask you about, you know, how is it that you work with different startups and in particular, like what is the process for um, founders to come to you and, you know, be part of this partnership? So there is no, I would say, real recipe. We're spending most of the time meeting, as I've said, just talented teams from all over, both from Israel, US and abroad. And in parallel, we're always looking at uh, what's interesting in the market. We try to pick very bold ideas, you know, I, I would say ideas and solutions that we believe will be here for the long run. So we're not just being opportunistic around one theme or another, and then see where all of these converge. So at times it will start with us ideating on a certain theme and trying to find the relevant team to collaborate with us. In other times, it would be more around finding an interesting team and ideating together. And uh, especially since we have such a good access to talent, especially around technological talent here in Israel, I think that creates uh, very interesting opportunities uh, around finding you know, the, the overlap between deep tech and fintech and really try to tackle very interesting, difficult to solve problems. So there is no, as I've said, you know, there is no real recipe. It's it's a, a bit of we divide the work streams between trying to find really good founders and trying to find really good ideas, and working very hard to fuse the two together. And within, like you, you know, the fintech group, are there any particular verticals that you are investing in? So it's really a wide variety of you know fintech is such a huge umbrella. There is no real definition. I was just having this conversation in the morning with. I get to see now probably three different uh, NFT groups a week just because of my previous experience. And people ask me, is NFT fintech? So, you know, and the answer, of course, it depends. Um, And it depends about, you know, it depends on how do you define fintech. So, you know, even being 15 years into fintech, I still don't know what the definition of fintech is. And of course, unlike other domains, it really varies across geographies as well. So, you know, fintech in the US is nothing like fintech in Europe and nothing like fintech in uh, Southeast Asia. And fintech in general, I would say what most people outside of fintech don't realize, it's a, it's a huge layer cake. So you rarely build anything from scratch or sort of a full stack offering. It's really about welding lots of different solutions together to create a coherent application on top. So we're really focusing, there's this VC cliche now of picks and shovels. So I I like that theme of building infrastructure for other companies to consume. I think that's a right sort of definition. B2B2C is an area where we focus on. So coming from a consumer company myself, I think uh, it becomes very crowded. Customer acquisition costs are through the roof. Uh, building yet another neobank in an ecosystem where we already have probably over 300 neobanks in this day and age. Uh, while there might be a, a plausible uh, reason for it, I think what we're seeing is being able to build more sort of services and infrastructural plays uh, for other fintechs to consume is a very interesting uh, area for me. 
But we're looking again across the board of different geographies, different domains, a lot of overlap between different domains. So the overlap of healthcare and fintech, the overlap of cyber and fintech, the overlap of uh, small businesses and fintech. So all of these areas are super interesting and I can probably just go on and on. But that's it in a nutshell, I would say. Yeah. And are, and are there any particular trends that you think are going to get the most traction in the next couple of years or any that you find particularly interesting? Yeah, so I would say the the one thing that comes to mind is, of course, at least for me, is whatever is that entire uh, trend that's happening now around uh, metaverse, NFTs, Web3, cryptos, all of that across the board is is fascinating just because the pace of change is so uh, remarkably like, you know, nothing I've seen before. And I've been, you know, 25 years looking at products and technologies. You know, I grew up reading sci-fi novels for probably most of my uh, good teenage years. And it never occurred to me that it will look something like this. And nevertheless, with, you know, the last two years with metaverse NFTs and a global pandemic happening, it looks like a slow-mo sci-fi uh, movie to me, and I feel so old, but um, it is still fascinating. And, you know, I, I sit with my eight-year-old son, who, if you asked what's more important to him, his physical toys or his uh, avatars on Epic Games and, and other virtual worlds, it's a no-brainer for him. So I look at younger generations and how they consume content, how they consume, uh, how they spend their time and possibly their money even though it's not their money yet. And I just, I just find it completely fascinating. The play-to-earn uh, economy is super fascinating, especially for younger generations. I think that will become a dramatic sort of theme to look closely at. And uh, what else can I say? I think you know everything that has to do with uh, as a service, again, for niche markets, I think that's going to be very common in, in the years to come. You know, underwriting models uh, used to be like these very huge sort of underwriting as a service companies that did magnificent AIs around everything. Now everybody understands you have to really focus on very specific use cases. So I think that's super interesting. Claims management in the healthcare industry is something we look closely into, which is also evolving uh, because it's such a fragmented and, and broken ecosystem. And of course, the rise of fintech across many different geographies where, you know, in some countries, we're already used to consuming fintech products for the last 20, 30 years. In emerging markets, it's really just starting and people really leapfrog over traditional solutions and just go to the, you know, generation 3.0 of products and solutions. And that's, you know, fascinating as well to watch uh, from the sidelines. What else can I say? I guess like one interesting thing just to hit on, you know, everyone has been talking about NFTs and like the metaverse in these past couple of months. But, you know, one of the things is maybe perhaps someone who is not as young as, as no longer my teenage years, but, you know, as a product person, everyone will always ask, what is, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? And I think part of like being in your position and having such a rich experience is you have this very forward looking view how these solutions can come about and what is it that they're actually tackling. So as far as like the enterprise as a service, that those are a bit more obvious, but for the first few trends that you had mentioned, what do you think are the biggest problems out there that these young startups will begin to tackle? 
Great question. So I'll just, um, you know, I've graduated from two, um, I did my, my bachelor's in product design and my master's in product design. So uh, the odd one out when it comes to fintech, um, and maybe that's a whole different discussion, how a designer finds himself in fintech. But nevertheless, you know, having graduated after six years in, in art schools, I'm just so happy with the fact that I'm having conversations around what is art with so many people over the past uh, year or so with all of this NFT boom. I've never thought I would be in this position. And so I'm having these fascinating conversations of uh, what is art, what it means to acquire art, what it means to deal with art, what it means to become a collector of digital art. And so I think people don't realize, you know, people who have not been in this world don't realize that, you know, it's so, I think, you know, that that sort of cliche of a struggling artist is really the reality for most artists out there. It doesn't matter if it's fine art or music or creators out there. So I think a lot of what Web3 is all about is giving power back to the creator community. So first and foremost, I, I would say that is what some of these technologies are trying to solve, uh, where you as the artist, traditionally, if you were an upcoming artist, you would sell your art for nothing. The galleries would probably take everywhere from you know, 50 to 70% out of, the, out of the proceeds. It will take you a long journey to really build up your reputation. And only when you become very uh, big and famous, that's where you'll have the the luxury of actually trying to figure out what are the best terms for you. With all of this NFT revolution, smart contracts, better royalty uh, algorithms, I think the, the potential of you as an artist earning early on from your popularity uh, and your followership is so much more rewarding for the actual artist. So I think that is where I see the real value. Of course, you know, it's still so nascent. So, you know, there's always the good, the bad and the ugly. The good part is it, it, it really is empowering the creator communities. The bad, you know, we're still, there's lots of fraud out there. So I think we've managed to manage, but I think the, the sort of um, distribution models are being more and more efficient, but the minting process has not, you know, there's still lots of loopholes to be dealt with, with the minting process, the entire IP process. That's where I also think there are lots of opportunities. So, you know, when some of these open platforms, you can just take somebody else's art and, and mint it uh, as if it was your own. So I think there are still a lot of issues around uh, dealing with IP over digital art. Then, yeah, so I think it, it's really about not only empowering the community, but also making sure the, the platforms are better suited to reflect the popularity for the consumers as well as for, for the creators and not just for the platform themselves. So we're the, you know, sort of Web2 discussion around the popular music and video sharing platforms where they make most of the proceeds and only until you get like a billion viewers, you will maybe be able to make something. I think that will probably uh, change drastically with Web3. Uh, web yeah, it's funny that you bring that up because... I also, I used to study art history, and that's one thing that I always think about, you know, friends that have gone off to actually do the fine arts or, you know, try to become big. It's, it's such an interesting take to be able to say, implement that proper type of business model that actually works for the artist in the outside of NFTs, thinking about different ways of 
implementing blockchain technology, it becomes very difficult. So, saying. Definitely. I I also think that um, the second part of the debate around art is around art and NFTs, I think, is, you know, curated versus non-curated. This is where most of my, I would say, artistic friends have a difficult time understanding how can you create a non-curated marketplace having been you know from for the past i don't know how many centuries used to be you know having consumed only curated content and i think again that would be a super interesting development to see how these two will reconcile because i think the the answer is probably it's not going to be a binary answer we'll see lots of curated projects as well as the rising popularity of sort of non-curated platforms right now the signal versus noise ratio is just sort of uh, more there's way more noise than good signal, I would say, but I don't think the the solution would be just to curate the entire ecosystem. That's really cool. I haven't heard that point about the curate versus non-curate, so definitely good topic for um, conversations with other friends as well. So, of that, what are you thinking about for 2022? You know, we've talked about a lot of trends that are going to be that we're both excited for for the next few years, but Is there something in particular that you are looking forward to, especially this coming year as as we're wrapping up, which I can't believe 2021 already? Well, not to make this into a Miss Universe speech, but I I, I would definitely say that I would would hope for this uh, pandemic to be over so we would see the end of this uh, crazy reality we live in. And I think there is a big question mark around what is the new norm, which has been going on for the past uh, two years. I definitely think that, you know, we'll see more and more innovation going on around the supply chain, which is, of course, a huge topic that everybody's uh, talking about in the past, um, you know, couple of months since we've been into the situation, you know, the the analogy of like, a, you know, a Russian uh, nuclear submarine in the 50s that got stuck and now you have to restart everything and nobody knows how to do it. So uh, that's what happens with the world of supply chain. We see more and more opportunities around figure out how fintech plays a, a more significant role within this ecosystem. You know, a container leaves uh, point A, goes to point Z, and there are like 17 different vendors uh, in the middle of that process. And nobody knows how to analyze that journey, being able to figure out uh, cost estimations and so forth. So I think there'll be lots of innovation and, and discussions around that. And uh, again, I think it's it's mostly what I find really fascinating is how different generations interact with financial products. And, you know, mostly because of my previous experience and still ongoing experience with eToro is, you know, I look at my grandfather's generation. He was born in the early 20th century, almost 100, well, more than 100 years ago, passed away at the age of 99. He was a banker. Uh, for him, a financial product was only T-bills or, you know, treasury products. He had, had known as financial products, maybe fixed income of large financial institutions. My father, a generation later, for him, a financial product would be only probably fixed income products of, you know, large cap stocks. For my generation, it, it's all about tech stocks. I was born in the late, uh, you know, 70s. So for me, it's most of my portfolio is skewed around tech stock stuff I know, the rise of FANG and, and other type of securities. For my brother generations, it's a mix of tech stocks and then crypto. And I think for 
younger generations, which is most interesting, where their first of first financial interaction is with assets like crypto or maybe now NFTs. I think that's a, a, a fascinating world. I think we all understand that there's a lot of talk about financial literacy, how people are not really prepared for what's going on in the outside world, and looking at you know younger and younger generations interact with financial assets like crypto, like NFTs for the first time, not even haven't been you know more, more of a revolution versus an evolution through the traditional system to a new system, but just starting off in a new system, I think that's uh, super fascinating. And so the whole sort of debate around what is good and sound financial education, not only for younger generations, but for this generation and younger generation, I think that's, that's something that I look personally closely at. And again, I think, you know, fusing the old world with the new world, what's typically referred to an on-ramp and off-ramp between the crypto world and the traditional world is still where we will see a lot of developments around. Yeah. And do you think there's any particular innovations that are poised to take over or any companies that in the next couple of years you, you're really bullish on? I think with, without going to naming specific companies, just so I won't uh, start uh, offending lots of my colleagues and I'll get phone calls by, why haven't you mentioned my company? <laughs> I would just say that um, I really like companies that try, uh, again, sort of reconciling old world and new world. I think this is where we see lots of demand and still the, the journey for an individual to interact with some of these newer worlds is still unbearably difficult. For me, you know, I, I look at myself predominantly as a product guy. I think it's still super challenging for non-crypto consumers to interact with NFTs or some of these different marketplaces, gaming platforms around crypto, etc. The whole experience of having to download the wallet, put the security phrases, uh, starting to install different plugins, moving money in and out. There's still lots of anxiety that you have to deal with. Uh, so I'm constantly surprised by the amount of phone calls I get from some of my, you know, even very tech-savvy friends who just tell me, how do I do this? How do I do that? Maybe come uh, over for a coffee, sit with me for an hour, tell me what to install, how to install, how to interact. So that le level of anxiety has to go away, which is something we've already gotten used to with the old world, but the sort of newer crypto revolution has has yet to solve some of these I would say almost essential underlying issues with the product experience. Another uh, area which I closely look at as something that will, uh, of, of personal interest, but also from my, my experience is where does tax fit into the, uh, the entire landscape of fintech? And that's a whole different subject. I just went from crypto to taxes, but nevertheless, we see tax having an impact on you know, everybody from all individuals who have to file their taxes, small, medium businesses, the rise of gig economy workers, uh, we just keep on trending. People are becoming more and more self-employed, more independent. Everybody has huge tax implications. If you look at um, the world three decades ago, where maybe my father or your father had the same job for 30 years with the same employer, the same bank account, the same credit card company. And so doing his taxes was quite streamlined and no, no surprises there. If you look at Generation Z, which hold a typical job for less than two years, do lots of uh, gig economy, 
different uh, gigs across, and then also having three, four different bank accounts, seven credit cards, two brokerage accounts, maybe a 401k, maybe some some different uh, credit and lending products. And then the tax schemes get so much more complicated uh, if you compare it a couple of decades ago. That creates a much more difficult to maneuver tax situation. And yet people look at taxes as something completely siloed. So people typically come to the end of the year having to spend you know, two weekends at their parents' basement or having to take a couple of days off from work, trying to deal with their personal or business taxes. And so that begs the question is, why is it still siloed um, where everybody's talking about financial wellness, everybody's talking about financial literacy, and that piece of the puzzle is still missing? So I'm personally fascinated by how to drive taxes as sort of, I call it the abandoned child of fintech, into being a more coherent part of the entire fintech stack. And I think we'll see more and more innovation happening in that part of the domain, which is still completely missing. So more continuous advice and more continuous involvement with you know, the tax implications on your day-to-day interactions with your financial wellness, whether it be just credit card transactions, uh, taking a mortgage, buying a significant something, um, planning for a long-term future, and et cetera. And you're also interested, based on your, um, your experience, what do you think is better Thinking about all of these trends and all this innovation that's happening, is it is it better to be a true innovator or is it better to be a fast follower? Tough question. I think it really depends on the market, on the geography. I, I would say the obvious answer for me would be an innovator because um, you know when, when you're a fast follower, it's, it's very difficult to figure out where would the market go. I think it's it's always more expensive and more difficult to educate the market, but nevertheless, it's way more rewarding. I think it's the only way to build a really big company. Having said that, you know there are certain areas, if you look at the payment industry, which is probably the more sort of fintech 1.0 all happened around payments, and that's been going on for the past two or three decades now. There's still so much to innovate with in the payments industry, even though you're not going to be you know, it's more of a, an evolution versus a revolution. So I would say it really depends on the vertical and the, uh, and the geography. I see lots of fast followers just taking one good fintech model that has worked in one part of the world, replicating that to a completely different country. And voila, you've got a, a great innovation for the local market without having to figure out everything from scratch. And that really answers very strong local demands. And I think this is one of the reasons why we see fintech so fragmented across different geographies, just because the infrastructure, both on the regulatory and the operational side, is so different between countries. It's not just about replicating. It's, it's really about adjusting the models. And so is, is that an innovator or a fast forward? I'm not sure. What advice do you have for startups? We have so many aspiring entrepreneurs uh, listening to our show. Clearly, bringing quite a quite rich experience with your previous company and well, your current company right now, but also your new company. What advice do you have for them? What advice? Avoid mistakes. <laughs> I just think, you know, I'll give the obvious answers, but I think uh, it is always worth remembering. I think uh, really intimate knowledge of the target audience is something that I'm always surprised 
I see so many companies with very talented founders where I ask, you know, who's the target audience? And they say, oh, anybody between uh, 25 and 55 who's whatever, making over such and such a year. And that's always probably the wrong answer. I think you have to get to a level of granularity where the target audience is very, very well defined. And so I think that that exercise of building user personas, I never get tired of it, really understanding who's the target audience. I think the best way of really getting to know the, the target audience is through customer service. So if, if you're a founder in a company that's already up and running, I think the best exercise for founders, product managers across the company, just sit in customer service. I'm always, I recently gave a talk for, I think, 400 different product managers and I said, uh, you know, who's recently spent some time in, in customer service? And I think less than 10 people raised their hands. And I think that's the best way of learning about your company, your service, is sitting for a couple of hours at customer service, really listening to the customers. The other thing is, I think that uh, romantic period of trying to sell bold ideas to Fortune 500, I think that's the wrong way to go. You have to start more nimble, try and start figuring out design partnerships early on with smaller companies, smaller teams, companies which are more tech-driven companies, product-driven companies. I've seen so many different startups die at the corridors of large banks, uh, especially in the US, but not just in the US. And so people come to me super excited telling me, oh, you know, we've just signed this LOI with this huge bank. And then I put on my sad face and nobody understands why. Uh, because I already know that, you know, two years later, they're going to come back to me and say, you know what, we're still stuck in compliance. We still haven't got paid for our, our work. We still have nothing to show to our board of directors and early investors. So try and pick the right partners and don't get uh, overly uh, in love with the fact that some large financial institution is, is giving you a, an LOI. Enjoy the roller coaster. It's going to be lots of anxiety, lots of sleepless night, but it comes with the territory. And that's it. Famous last words. <laughs> Our last question is a fun one. We try to get to know a bit ago about you. So I see that you have a number of electric guitars behind you. Uh, what's, what's the deal with that? <laughs> yeah, so as I've said, you know, I was born in the late 70s, had my teenage years in the you know, late 80s, mid 90s, like everybody who grew up in Israel. When I was 13, I had my bar mitzvah and I got my electric guitar. That was like the grunge years. I always thought I wanted to be a, a guitar player, ended up in fintech. I was might be maybe I was too much of a geek to really uh, be on stages, but you know I still enjoy playing the guitar. Uh, so if I wasn't doing fintech, I would probably be, you know, crafting guitars uh, somewhere in the basement or something of the sort. So I find it fascinating. Musical instruments in general fascinate me, and if I can uh, tinker around with, uh, by the way, the, uh, these are all bass guitars. If I could tinker around with playing the bass between uh, Zoom calls, that's a good day for me. That's awesome. And, and clearly, I, I am not the right person to ask about guitars, but <laughs> <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Uh, this has been lovely having you on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Gabby. Uh, wonderful to be here. And thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you love our show, please write us a review or engage with us on social media. We greatly appreciate your support and helps us spread the word to more listeners.
If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium at Warren Fintech. Here you'll access interviews, articles, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, a very special thank you to our wonderful editor, Rafael Ostria. Until next time, your host, Gabby.